the National Archives podcast series, Dunkirk, From Disaster to Deliverance, presented by Sinclair Mackay. This talk was recorded on the 19th of May 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. Even before the war, these vast, wide beaches had a rather haunting quality. On the border of northern France and Belgium, silent dunes stretched on for miles. This had once been a fashionable resort. Some mornings, silver mists would make the sea and the sky indivisible. But in the spring of 1940, the warm blue days of May, there was a crystal brightness. For the hundreds of thousands of Allied soldiers trapped out here on the sand, desperately thirsty and hungry, their comrades dismembered, disassembled under agonizing German bombing, there was another torture. When they faced out to the sea, they had the knowledge that home was just a matter of miles away. A few of these men lost their minds and marched like automatons into the waves, imagining somehow that they could simply walk across to England. No one could stop them. Yet, for the vast majority, and against every expectation, deliverance from the unstoppable Germans came. It came in the form of over 700 boats, from naval destroyers to tiny Thames tugs to elegant yachts. Incredibly, defying the firepower of the Wehrmacht, the sanctuary of the White Cliffs was reached. Some say that it was on those French sands and jetties that the course of the Second World War was set. Those crucial days, from May the 26th to June the 4th, 1940, have been shaped into Britain's most potent modern legend. We have a spirit, and its name is Dunkirk. But how did this miserable, traumatic, terrifying retreat somehow, within days, get turned around into a kind of national celebration? This isn't just a military story. It's the story of an entire nation's character, suddenly illuminated as though in a lightning flash. What was going on back here in Britain during those days and nights when young soldiers were trapped at the edge of disaster? Where did this extraordinary national spirit suddenly materialise from? Now, some of the veterans I've been very privileged to meet also find themselves slightly wondering. For them... Dunkirk was simply the start of the war, the shock that instantly turned them into experienced sailors and soldiers. First, that electric bolt of energy with the news that the Germans had invaded the Low Countries, followed then by the chilly realisation that the Germans were scything towards them and scything around them, followed by orders from above, sometimes confused about pulling back fast to a port called Dunkirk the sense of the doors of escape closing inexorably, German tanks on the horizon, firefights across canals, efforts to blow up bridges to stop them. In that flat northern French countryside, there were more subtle insidious signs too. One veteran remembered how, as he left a small village one evening, a German soldier on a motorbike went past quite nonchalantly. That's what invasion looks like. Now, there is Arthur Taylor, a brilliant veteran. I was so privileged to meet him. Back then, in 1940, he was an RAF signalsman. He was trapped in France, and 
Curiously, he was more worried about being attacked by British soldiers than German soldiers, because the British soldiers were convinced that the RAF wasn't doing enough. They were absolutely wrong about that, incidentally. The RAF were doing as much as they conceivably could, but that wasn't any use to Mr. Taylor. Throughout the entire crisis, he had to disguise himself in a greatcoat and wellies in that blistering heat, as if things he said weren't undignified enough already. I also got the chance to meet a brilliant man who lives just up the road from here, actually, in Teddington, Reg Vine, who then was a 15-year-old sea cadet, even then based in Teddington. The proposition was put to Reg Vine by an officer one afternoon in late May. The proposition was this. Do you fancy a trip to the seaside? There'll be a surprise there. As Mr. Vine says now, I bloody was surprised. Yet he and other veterans know that the fascination of the Dunkirk story is to do with all the shades of human nature, not just on the front line, but back at home as well. No one quite knew what to expect, not even the German soldiers who had, with such apparent ease, sliced their way into northern France, set Boulogne and Calais aflame. Not even those German soldiers could quite predicted the surreal scenes, plus the incredible bounties of British equipment. Arthur Taylor remembered the orders to abandon trucks, motorbikes. There were ponds filled with guns and bayonets that jabbed up out of the water like multiple Excaliburs. Other veterans remembered the unsettlingly eerie sight of men standing in the waves, up to their shoulders in the water, perfectly still, even as the bombers dived. Now, even in late May, that water was very, very cold. To stand there under such pressure, under such an unimaginable duress, goes way beyond the often scanty training that these young British soldiers had received. So Dunkirk spirit, an expression so intensely familiar that we never actually stop to examine it. It's a phrase very often used by politicians. Uh, David Cameron invoked it uh, a couple of years ago during the floods, if you remember. And when politicians utter it particularly, you tend to pull back a little. Dunkirk spirit, what do the politicians think it is? I suppose refusing to buckle under impossible odds? Yet that's not quite the story of what happened in 1940. You could try the gung-ho adventure of the little ships, their amateur crews sailing courageously into fire again and again. Well, it's certainly true, and it's close, but it's still not the whole story. I became seriously interested in the whole subject of the Dunkirk evacuation on that wonderful day in 2012, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, uh, when there was that flotilla down the Thames. I watched from a balcony in the East End, and as those little ships, the boats, the very boats that had sailed into that inferno, floated past, I felt my eyes prickling. I was very moved, without quite understanding why. So were a great many other people. But as I started research and meeting up with Dunkirk veterans, I quickly understood that the story actually was much more complex than the cardboard Mrs. Miniver version. What is now referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk, the evacuation, and it still bears repeating quite often, of over 338,000 Allied soldiers in the teeth of a nightmarish onslaught, is actually the spectacle of an entire nation being jolted into transformation on every level. 
And it's also the fascination of what was going on back in Britain as this extraordinary nine-day cliffhanger was played out. What did the tension do to civilian life? How did the people respond? This is also the story of the wilder shores of human nature, from the psychopathic behavior of some German troops to the wide-eyed horror of sailors rowing boats through bloated corpses in the surf, to the amazingly languid image of a British officer casually making his way into the town of Dunkirk on roller skates as the port itself was burning. The extremes were sometimes startling. Arthur Marshall, uh, who now perhaps is best remembered as the very witty chortling panellist on Call My Bluff years and years ago, he, Arthur, Arthur Marshall was among those soldiers forced to spend days and nights on the beaches outside Dunkirk. Under intense bombardment, he reduced the men around him to hysterics by pretending very camply that he was the headmistress of a girls' boarding school. Mrs. Montgomery, he called himself, and that they were his charges. He told them, the motto of the school ladies is this, don't look round or you might see something nasty. His men apparently were paralysed with laughter. But the story of Dunkirk's spirit is also the story of the People's War, and how particularly in June 1940, in the teeth of a shocking defeat by a ruthless enemy that appeared to be tearing up the map of Europe at will, the British people somehow instantly reinterpreted the whole thing as a victory. By contrast, the new Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, had moments, occasional moments, of being sunk into the darkest depression. In the immediate aftermath of Dunkirk, he made it quite clear that victories are not won via retreats. For some reason, the people decided differently. It wasn't down to the Ministry of Information. It wasn't down to the newspapers or the radio or the cinema. This mood arose in the blink of an eye from elsewhere. It's usually said, and rightly so, that Churchill inspired the British, but on this one occasion, it actually seems to work the other way around. It's also a story about the surprising texture of everyday life in 1940. Popular memory now tends to conflate the war into blitz, bombing raids, and severe rationing. Yet during the long months of the phony war, the curiously still autumn of 1939, right up until the point when the Germans smashed through the Low Countries in the following spring, a curious version of normality prevailed. The pubs were doing brisk business. Sugar and bacon were only just starting to get scarce. And there were urban myths about posh ladies from Hampstead sending their maids into the poorer districts to buy up extra supplies from willing greengrocers, if you could imagine such villainy. Blackburn was playing West Ham in the Football League. The Times was still putting cricket results on the front page. People were still doing the Lambeth Walk and crowding into the Mecca ballrooms, eager to dance to American Swing. The Mecca dance halls particularly offered gaudy escape from the monochrome gloom of the blackout. Now, in 1939, the British had entered the Second World War as though it was a very slightly updated version of the first. Out in northern France, under the leadership, as we see here, of Lord Gord, soldiers were busy digging trenches as part of the Maginot Line. 
And even in this new modern age, the army still seemed in some ways to be run on 19th century lines. Officers were often required to have private incomes still. John Standish Prendergast Gord was very much of this old school. He had the unlikely nickname Fat Boy. Uh, seems slightly unfair as well. As a younger man, he adored practical jokes. He used to set off hoses of ice-cold water under bedroom doors, that kind of thing. When war was declared, he had made impassioned pleas for more equipment and men. Yet the Treasury only had so much money, and everything seemed to be done at a last-minute scramble. Certainly before the war, there were one or two slick recruiting drives, but, uh, in fact, the reality away from that was different. Arthur Taylor, for instance, told me that he was recruited into the territorials in southwest London by a soldier standing at a makeshift stall. That's how, how easily he got in. And the fact that he also lied about his age uh, to get in, which is neither here nor there. And as to equipment, there's one Dunkirk veteran I interviewed described how his training in the countryside involved firing blank ammunition at kites. This created great puffs of smoke, but it wasn't really adequate preparation for the days that would come. In the late 1930s, Secretary of State for War Leslie Hoare Belisha, of Belisha Beacon fame, had developed a knack for creating eye-catching headlines. He inspired the loathing of the military high command. One of his edicts was that Joe Lyons, the corner house man, uh, should look at army catering. Superb public relations, but of limited use against the Wehrmacht. But how could Britain really have known what sort of war it had to be readied for? Everyone from the cabinet down was expecting immediate poison gas attacks on London. They never came. Now, by April 1939, there was conscription. But the army hierarchy was not happy with the physical standard of many young men from the poorer urban areas around the country. They were thin. They had weak lungs. Back in the mid-1930s, there had been disquiet over the state of Britain's potential fighting force. Few then seemed to link malnutrition to poverty and unemployment. Yet rickets had returned to Britain. Now, the army tried an experiment. They took a batch of urban lads, and just for a few weeks, they fed them milk, orange juice, square meals. The transformation was practically instantaneous, and it astonished the army hierarchy as well. Now, elsewhere, Britain's pleasure boats and holiday steamers were undergoing wartime transformation. Gradually, they stopped taking day-trip passengers to the Isle of Wight and South End and were instead drawn into naval service. Some ships, like the Gracie Fields, graciously went to work in the Thames estuary in the bitterly cold winter of 1939, sweeping for mines. The Germans had invented new generations of these lethal marine bombs. The pleasure boats, with their new crews, set sail to seek them out. Meanwhile, a semi-retired admiral, Bertram Ramsey, who had rather fallen out of favour, was summoned back in order to mastermind defence operations. Let's see if we've got him here. Yes, here he is. Um... What we don't see him here doing, incidentally, is discussing tactics with Winston Churchill, which is another photograph that's <laughs> that seems to have dropped off. But it was Ramsey, with his brilliant network of naval subordinates, uh, who would be the architect 
of this stupendous rescue. He directed it from Dover, uh, from a whitewashed office in the wall of a cliff, which he called his igloo. From that vantage point, he could see the flickering orange skies over burning Calais. Now, even at the height of the crisis, alert in the darkness of the night, the odd hour of snatched sleep as he directed forth ships and exhausted crews, Ramsay still found time to write to his wife, his darling Mag. Helen Margaret was living at their home in the borders. On the brink of expected German invasion, Ramsay was still writing to tell her of the best sherry merchants in Dover and how he would send her a case. See, life rather movingly steamed on. Now, it was Ramsay and his brilliant team who had just a couple of weeks before it became obvious that the army would have to be evacuated, scouted out all the boats that might potentially be able to help. The naval officers went up and down the coast and inland too, up the Thames, to the Tough Brothers of Teddington. Now, the Tough Brothers were boat builders who dealt with the smarter sort of clientele. When the more luxurious yachts, with their mahogany fittings, set off down the river to the sea to make that voyage, the Tough Brothers made sure that they kept a careful inventory of all the most delicate glassware and cutlery. Now, as I've said, the brilliant veterans that I've been so privileged to meet had some extraordinary stories. Teenager Reg Vine, who I've mentioned, uh, was obviously too young at the age of, fi- the age of 15 to join up. But as it was actually owing to a slightly chaotic home life uh, that he had in southwest London that he had signed up as a sea cadet. Uh, he said it was as much for something to do in the evening as anything else. Uh, the result was that Mr. Vine was the youngest person to sail over to take part in the rescue. He remembers that his senior officer told him how to stay calm in the face of hideously mutilated dead bodies. The officer simply told him, think of it this way, they're not human anymore. Mr. Vine, though, said that he relied on his own technique. He recalled how he had once had a spell working in his uncle's abattoir. Now we try to imagine that this was much the same thing. But not every man had a traumatic experience. Back in the summer of 1939, in the heart of rural Devon, there was 18-year-old Gareth Wright. Now, he had signed up with the Territorials, largely because he and his friends wanted something to occupy their time other than trying to get drinks at the local pub. Slightly to Mr Wright's surprise, on the very day war was declared, he and his friends were driven straight off to Plymouth and then sent out to France in a boat that Mr. Wright describes as being a blooming cockle shell of a thing. Now, when the time came for his company to abandon their French billet and hot-foot it to Dunkirk, Mr. Wright took a look at the abandoned naffy stores. He thought it would be a shame to leave behind all those cigarettes and bottles of whiskey. But before he could make off with his very modest supplies, a senior officer, who was very drunk, very unstable, threatened to have him shot for looting. Luckily, in the heat of the crisis, the drunk officer was diverted elsewhere. And indeed, Mr. Wright told me that he did manage to make it to Dunkirk with a few wee gifts. He says now, in fact, that the only injury he got in those days was a cut from the wooden box that held the whiskey. 
There was Clydeside shipbuilding apprentice Bob Halliday. Now, as a younger lad in the 1930s, Bob Halliday had been made piercingly aware of the class system when he and some friends went to a boys' summer camp alongside public school pupils. Mr. Halliday remembered how the public school boys had so much overpowering confidence, he lost all of his own. He simply let them win races, even though he was much faster. This was the world that the war would shake up. Now, young Mr. Halliday found himself in France. In fact, he spent months in a small village where he ate new, wonderful food, drank wines that he would never have got back in 1930s Glasgow, and he made deep, abiding friendships in a beautiful language he had never before spoken. As with all my other interviewees, Dunkirk was the beginning of his war. He then went on to fight in the desert and elsewhere. But those days in France and that escape left a deep impression on his soul. There were the sailors too. Now, one of the misconceptions of the Dunkirk story is that of brave civilian day-tripping amateurs setting out across the channel. Now, yes, they did. But alongside them were seasoned, experienced naval men. Now, Vic Viner, in 1940, he was 23 years old. And even by that young age, he had sailed right the way around the world with the Navy. He had seen colour and great beauty. Dunkirk, for him, was a turning point. His job, as a very young man, was to stay on the beaches as the soldiers were being evacuated. He had to supervise a column of 150 men and make sure that the embarkations were orderly. He was given a gun, not for shooting at German bombers, but to keep British soldiers in line. Vic Viner was on those beaches for six days and six nights under constant bombardment. His stories make you wonder how he can now smile so serenely on the world. Now, the French, and indeed most other people, had set great store by the Maginot Line, a defensive construction which was not actually a line, but a series of heavily fortified concrete outposts, each several miles apart, with some underground tunnels, and even the occasional subsurface railway for transporting equipment. It was considered as impregnable as the Great Wall of China. There was one notable sceptic about it all, and that was the very much out-of-favour Duke of Windsor, who, oddly enough, spotted its vulnerability. When the Nazis smashed their way into the Low Countries, they simply swerved past it. There were so many German tanks rolling through the apparently impassable Ardennes that the roads actually became gridlocked. And with the tanks came the screaming bomber planes, which had special devices fitted so that when they dived, they produced an unearthly howling noise, the trumpets of Jericho. The intention was to terrorize soldiers, Imagine what it was like with the civilian refugees fleeing from their homes with memories all too sharp of the Great War and now caught up in total war. There were obviously attempts to fight back to cut the Germans off from their supply lines to stop the tanks. The Wehrmacht was ineluctable. But human nature is never so predictable. And the course of military events is often more like chaos theory than careful calculations. Now, these triumphant Germans outside Dunkirk, they seem, they, so they seem curiously relaxed. 
And it has to be said that not all British soldiers got the treatment that they expected either. Harry Malpass, who had served in India, was part of a rearguard defensive effort, very brave, trying to hold relentless German forces off. He got his knee shot out. Unable to move, he was then approached by German soldiers. They carefully lifted him into a truck, gave him a cigarette. Then they drove him to a German field hospital. Harry Malpass was operated on. He was then sent off to be a prisoner of war in Poland. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this. The new knee that the German doctor had given him worked so well that he could play football for decades afterwards. And in fact, the, the knee lasted until 1990, when finally it was time to have it replaced. The team at Bournemouth Hospital apparently were agog and told Mr. Malpass that whoever that German doctor was, he was years ahead of his time. Now, back in Britain, as women started with some gusto to throw themselves into war work, at this point in 1940, May 1940, everyone seemed simultaneously to be expecting invasion and yet behaving rather giddily. In Huddersfield, for instance, one woman and her friend went to church for the very first time in their adult lives. They were doing so in search of some kind of solace. But they ended up leaving the service early because, as they said, they were dead boring. Now, elsewhere, at this exact time, a pair of girls in a textile mill uh, working there in Yorkshire caused outrage when they started goose-stepping up and down the shop floor. When asked what they thought exactly they were doing, uh, they said that they were just getting ready for Hitler. Every town, every village, had rumours of spies. The time of Dunkirk was also the time of fifth colonist fever. Spies in our midst, working to bring the country down from within. The vicar, late at night in the bell tower with the eldest lamp. The nun with the curiously hairy hands. News of what was happening in France and the Low Countries was actually taking a little while to filter through. Not even that many politicians, senior politicians, seemed aware that Operation Dynamo the secret evacuation was underway. And throughout those days, the national quest for pleasure went on. There was debate about whether greyhound racing should be allowed to continue at this moment of national crisis. The answer was, well, horse racing and cricket were still going on, so it wouldn't be fair to deny the working man his honest fun. And in the rich twilights of early summer evenings, the little ships assembled, many having sailed down the Thames, there were cockle-picking boats from South End, posh motor yachts with smart leather furnishings from Henley. There were humble Thames barges and Dutch flat-bottomed scoots. Some boats were still fitted with cocktail bars. Others still had signs up for tourists pointing the way to the lavatories. Now, alongside the naval destroyers that would be doing the heavy lifting from the port of Dunkirk, these were the vessels that were to find an instant form of immortality, an unselfconsciously eccentric response to the sleek, blank modernity of the Nazi war machine. Now, a great many of these heroic boats were sunk, and many men and crew were drowned. The water of Dunkirk Harbour became a maze of masts, an additional hazard for all the other ships. 
But imagine it from the point of view of the German pilots swooping in to attack. The mad spectacle below of hundreds of pleasure boats like some surreal wartime regatta. And the civilian sailors piled in there with great bravery, especially those making return trips, having seen already the nightmare of destruction that the Germans were raining down on the town and the beaches. Because oil containers had been hit, the air in some places was black and as thick as soup. Death was all-pervasive and all too terribly visible. And yet, back the sailors, naval and amateur, went again and again. The men they were helping to escape had been subsisting on ever-depleting supplies of bully beef. Washed down, not with water, supplies had been cut, but in some cases red wine. Arthur Taylor told me that he, he took very careful, delicate sips so as not to get bloated. The result of this hunger was weakness, of course. So even climbing aboard a rescuing boat would prove a hideous effort for some. And all this under relentless attacks from the air. Hospital ships were fired upon too. A few nurses who sailed across in a Red Cross marked ship recalled that mix of fear and boiling fury that all laws of decency could have been so ruthlessly thrown aside. The bullets were only one concern. Nurses and doctors were being faced with the most hideously injured men, some of whom had the double agony of burns exposed to seawater. Yet elsewhere, the improvised nature of the evacuation also caused some unintentional laughs. At Ramsgate, some boats were given rather random rations to help feed the rescued soldiers. One boat was given, quite simply, a side of raw beef and a sack of potatoes. And some of the smarter Thames yachts came loaded with vintage wine and good brandy. Navigation, for some, was literally by means of a daily telegraph, cut-out-and-keep map. Other vessels, the tourist boats, had kitchens and the means to serve up nutritious stews, but not to serve them, so some exhausted soldiers got their stew out of pretty cocktail glasses. On another boat, several soldiers got all the way back to Ramsgate Harbour when they realised, one, that they had no trousers, they'd simply been lost under fire or in the water, and two, that there were young female volunteers lining up on the quay to help them. The quick-thinking officer on this particular occasion extemporised. The men pulled all the dainty curtains down from, po- from the boat's portholes and fashioned them into leggings. There were standards to uphold. So, Dunkirk spirit. Partly, it's about fortitude. The men waiting in the wide, sandy dunes, bombers diving on them, and finding those men that corpses made for good cover. You'd simply get down in the dunes and pull the bodies over you. A sense of the macabre disappears under the compulsion to simply stay alive. In a wider sense, though, partly the story is about endurance. The young sea cadets rowing soldiers back and forth uh, to the bigger ships anchored far from the sandy shallows. Now, Vic Viner, uh, who I mentioned earlier, and his mate, rowed so hard for so many hours that the two of them literally began to sweat blood. They saw it trickling down their arms and their hands. But Dunkirk spirit is also 
it's also a curious moment of national morphic resonance. As the first of the traumatised soldiers were disembarked at Dover and Ramsgate, word got round as quickly as Mercury. The soldiers were under orders to tell no one of what they'd seen. Newspapers were given rationed, edited anecdotes. But rather like that weird moment in 1997, when the public responded instantly to the death of Princess Diana, here was an example of people deciding almost instinctively as one what their response would be. The women and the unconscripted men rushed to the railway stations. They brought food with them, fruit, sandwiches. Urns of tea were prepared. When the trains made stops, the soldiers were refreshed. When the trains didn't stop, sandwiches were hurled through the windows. There were kisses, lots of kisses. These men were being treated like film stars. One officer recalled getting back and setting off on short leave for his home in Kent. He went to the local cinema and was bemused when the management made a pre-screening announcement about the return of brave heroes. Now, the cinema audience cheered deafeningly. The officer in question was sitting there. He felt that he had been part of a humiliating retreat. He wasn't looking for cheers. In a curious sense, the people sitting around him also would have known that, but that still wasn't the story. Just a few days later, in towns up and down the land, troops were greeted with bunting, jubilation, and, as I said earlier, lots of kisses. Um, in Leicester, uh, there was a nice story about how groups of small boys clustered around soldiers eager for souvenirs. They were desperate for souvenirs. Bullets, shrapnel, anything. The amused soldiers obliged. Uh, and this happened in quite a few places because a few days later, a senior officer wrote to the Times thanking the general public for their overwhelming generosity but asking that they didn't press troops for dangerous keepsakes. Now, everyone considered this to be the eve of invasion. Yet somehow, perhaps due to some psychological displacement, few seemed to behave as though that was the case. Possibly there was an edge of hysteria. Young Reg Vine came back on the troop train to Richmond, again just up the road. He and the soldiers were besieged, there were lots of people, he said, holding up photographs. Mothers asking the men if they had seen their sons. Very gently, Reg Vine tried to explain how many thousands of people had been there and how all those unwashed faces looked the same. But remember, those frantic, desperate parents had lived through the Great War. They had searing memories of the loved ones who didn't come back from France. And so we can see that Britain, in that tiny crucible of time, was roiling with a range of extreme emotions. There was sometimes a mad insouciance, which was very funny. There was one young lady in North London who confided to mass observation uh, in that late May 1940 that she was suddenly aware, suddenly, of the local YMCA being full of French and Belgian soldiers. She said it was a complete puzzle. Why were all these chaps here and not fighting over there? It wasn't enough of a puzzle, though, uh, to keep her from her evening tennis, which she was much more eager to tell mass observation about, and drinks later at the Spaniards Inn. Meanwhile, London's artistic life sailed on. On the very same evening, 
that desperate French refugees were ploughing their way along packed roads, and as exhausted soldiers desperately tried to climb rope ladders onto boats, the Old Vic had its opening night for John Gilgood's production of The Tempest, with Jessica Tandy as Miranda. Elsewhere, the Royal Academy was preparing for its summer show. Margaret Clutterbuck of Marlebone was advertising ballroom dancing lessons. Now, for Arthur Taylor, he was the young RAF signalsman in heavy disguise around a bunch of soldiers, if you recall. Relief didn't even come when he got back to Dover, ushered onto a train surrounded by soldiers, all of whom wrongly furious about what they saw as the absence of the RAF. Mr. Taylor finally got into Victoria Station, headed into a bar, and only then did he feel safe enough to reveal the uniform beneath the greatcoat. He said the indignity of it still makes him raise his eyebrows today. Churchill's immortal speech of June 4th, 1940, as the evacuation of Dunkirk was completed, leaving behind thousands of prisoners of war and thousands dead, was grave. And if you read it in a certain way, it's slightly more alarming than reassuring. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. It's been suggested that Churchill was trying to prepare the British for the shock of France's fall. Others saw the speech as a blatant appeal to American politicians to help. But the language, if you look at it in a certain way, can suggest something else too. Because a war that's being fought in the hills and in the streets is a war that's already lost. It's guerrilla warfare, defensive, desperate. Was this Churchill's real intention? To prepare Britain for the possibility of defeat? Parliament appeared to think not when he first gave the speech. There were great cheers. There was one notable dissenter. Manny Shinwell, the the very well-known left-wing MP, remembered He remembered that the speech left him feeling deflated and depressed. Perhaps that was the right response, because those close to Churchill at the time heard him use very similar terms just days before. At the height of Dunkirk, he told Duff Cooper, the end is very near, but there will be no surrender. We will go down fighting. To Hugh Dalton, Churchill said that we would, if necessary, go down fighting while choking on our own blood. Funnily enough, the very next day, the hugely popular writer J.B. Priestley gave a talk on the BBC. He talked about Dunkirk too, but he described it as an absurd English epic. He dwelt on the paddle steamers. He considered the nobility of these and the little motor yachts sailing out into that inferno He spoke of the previous life of the boats and the kind of food and drink that holidaymakers would have enjoyed aboard them. Quite subtly, Priestley was using the paddle steamers as a metaphor for the British themselves. Cheerful, slightly eccentric, and rackety, but underneath it all, deceptively strong, more than ready. By implication, he invited listeners to compare that to the Nazi forces, all the sleek, modern, soulless steel. The legend of the little ships was very quick to gather pace. On the Sunday, 
that this strange and varied flotilla returned, sailing back up the Thames, word got out. The boats were seen under Tower Bridge. By the time the little ships got to Westminster Bridge, there was a huge cheering crowd. The public had framed the narrative for itself. Now, intriguingly, the Ministry of Information, which always sounds so Orwellian, so omniscient, was way behind on all of this. It was only weeks later that it occurred to them that the story of Dunkirk might make some rather grand propaganda. I did have a rather nice still of the Ministry of Information making a film involving one of the actual little ships that had been involved in the evacuation and starring Peggy Ashcroft. Uh, It was only a short film production, and Peggy Ashcroft, I think her character wasn't allowed to sail across because, this is absolutely the case, some women did try to volunteer to cross over to Dunkirk during the evacuation itself, uh, and they they were headed off by the authorities and turned back. Incidentally, a couple of those Thames pleasure boats that sailed out to Dunkirk 75 years ago still plough up and down the Thames today. One such boat is the Hurlingham. Sometimes, late at night, down in the East End, you can hear the thumping disco music and the drunken shrieks as the river party sails by on this boat. How many of those revellers on board know that 75 years ago there were bloodied, haggard, haunted troops standing and staring silently on those same decks? Dunkirk is perhaps the nation's character as it was then. The story has all the necessary elements for myth and legend. An evil, dreadful enemy, dangerous voyagers. Then there is also the glittering thread of a river flowing to the sea, to an unknowable world beyond, and the compulsion, no matter what, to make that voyage. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.